0: You're listening to the World of Higher Education Podcast, Season 2, Episode
1: 3. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education Podcast. One of the hardest things in comparative international higher education studies is getting a sense of how other country systems actually work. If you look at a statistical compendium, say, oh, we see these education at a glance, There's a tendency to imagine that all systems are identical because they all in one way or another, push out a similar palette of outputs, bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, doctorates, research papers, et cetera. But even a few seconds spent in a foreign university gets you thinking, what is this place and how is it run? It's not just about the differences in things like student admissions or academic career pathways. Among the hardest questions to answer is really who runs this place and how? Some university systems are decentralized almost to the point of anarchy. Others are very definitely autocratic. And to whose benefits are the universities being run? Faculty? Students? Managers? Political factions outside the university? And how would you know? The easiest way to learn about this kind of thing is by talking to people who have experience in more than one system. This method works well enough for countries where mobility is easy. It's less so for countries which are more isolationist and where the language is a barrier to those from abroad. And above all, that means China. There just aren't a lot of Western scholars who make it far enough inside the Chinese system to report back on the differences, which is unfortunate given what a huge piece of the global higher education puzzle that country represents. Today's guest is Daniel A. Bell, a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. Originally from Montreal, he became a specialist in the study of Confucius from the angle of political theory, worked his way into a position at the famed Tsinghua University in Beijing, before being named Dean of the School of Political Science and Public Administration at Shandong University. Now, Shandong might not be a household name in the West, but it's generally ranked in the top 20 universities in China and is comparable globally to places like Penn State, the Université de Montréal, the University of Sao Paulo, or the University of Helsinki. It's a big deal. Bell, so far as I know, is the first Westerner to be given senior responsibilities of this nature at a Chinese university, and he's written a charming book about his experiences called The Dean of Shandong, Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat at a Chinese University, published by Princeton University Press. In this interview with Bell, we touch on a variety of issues, including the Chinese understanding of merit, how gender issues play out at Chinese universities, and, but above all, his own experiences as an academic dean. One of the oddest things from a global point of view about Chinese universities is the two parallel power structures. One run by academics with the president at the top and the other by the communist party with a party secretary at the top. I asked Daniel about this and the answer I got, I think changed my understanding of this distinction quite a bit. In his telling the party side sounds very much involved in almost everything except academics, which in a way is not dissimilar from North America with the split between academics on the one hand and administration and student services on the other. So maybe not quite as odd as it seems. But enough from me. Let's hear from Daniel. So Daniel, how does a kid from Montreal end up as the dean of a major Chinese university? What's the path from Montreal to China?
2: Well, there's a kind of true story that I'll refer readers to the book, but the more boring academic story, I'll say it very quickly. I did my degree at McGill, and in my last year, it was in psychology. I took course at Charles Taylor. And I thought, wow, this political theory is so fascinating. And that's what I pursued uh, as a graduate student at Oxford, but I worked on communitarianism and communitarianism. It was, it's more a critique of liberal individualism, but it's more of an offshoot of liberalism. And my first job was in Singapore. And there we worked on Asian values and Asian values is kind of empty term, but when we dug into it and it focused on Confucianism, I thought it was fascinating. And many of the themes in Confucianism were actually developed in greater depths and diversity in Confucianism. So that kind of changed my approach. And then I gradually moved to the center of Confucianism, which is Shandong province. And I was offered the opportunity to be Dean of Shandong University, which is a premier university in the province of a hundred million people. And I was offered the post by a party secretary called Kong, which is in English it's Kongza means Confucius. He's a 76th generation descendant of Confucianism, and I had the task of promoting, uh, on the one hand, promoting Confucianism, on the other hand, of trying to internationalize the university.
1: So what was, when you got to Shandong, because you think you were at Tsinghua before that, and so you moved from Tsinghua to Shandong, the people know about you in Chinese higher education, what was the selection process, and what were you told about the job before you arrived? So I didn't really have administrative experience. At Tsinghua, I was, I guess,
2: a pure scholar. At Tsinghua, I mean, it's a university that trains political leaders in China. So many of the debates were about how to select and promote leaders with above average ability and virtue. I thought that was a fascinating debate. And I wrote a book about that called The China Model. The title is a little bit misleading. It's basically a defense of an ideal of political meritocracy. But I thought it'd be interesting to explore the practice as well. So at Shandong University, it was where I could try to learn about the system more from the inside. Now the selection process, frankly, was not that complicated. It's the party secretary for the Qingdao campus of Shandong University, I mentioned this Kong Kong Shuji who offered me the post. And
1: eventually I was admitted largely on the basis of his recommendation. Your book contains what I thought were some pretty amusing descriptions of departmental staff meetings, or I guess they were school meetings, and how it seemed like a case of collective governance. When it comes to the level of a department of faculty, how different in practice are Chinese and North American universities? So I've
2: never actually worked in a North American university, so I don't really have basis for comparison. But what I can say is that my initial expectation was that as a dean, I would have substantial power to pursue this dual mission of Confucianizing and internationalizing the university. But from the very beginning, I realized that it was more of a system of collective leadership where I would work with the four vice deans and three party secretaries in very lengthy meetings where we would openly criticize each other and deliberate and try to forge some sort of consensus. But the meetings would last four hours. And that was really my first hint that maybe I wasn't cut out for the job. I just tell you very quickly, when I wrote this book about the China model, I described what are the three ideal characteristics of a good public official? One is high intelligence. The other is high emotional intelligence because you work with people a lot. And the third is virtue, commitment to serving the community. What I didn't realize is that perhaps most important of all is a capacity for hard work because you have to be, especially maybe in China, and maybe this is a bit of a difference with North America. You're always on call through this WeChat system. If you have a formal post as a public official, you're basically working all the time, no weekends, no holidays. And during COVID, the public officials at the university basically lived in the university full time working to to deal with the COVID policy. So it was so exhausting. And basically I realized that's what I lacked is this capacity for hard work. I mean, I guess I work hard as an academic. But it's still different skills when you work hard with people and solving real problems. So I have great admiration for most of the public officials that I
1: engage with, but I just didn't have that capacity for hard work. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that it was a party official who brought you into Shandong. And a lot has been made in the West about the fact that universities have a form of parallel governance. There are formal academic hierarchies embedded in the institution, but there are also parallel party structures. How would you describe the relationship between academic and party hierarchies in universities in general? And what was your relationship like with your party counterparts? Because I understand there was more than one of them.
2: So generally, the academics are supposed to deal with academic issues. And I was selected as a dean to deal first and foremost with academic issues. And then the party officials, of course, deal with political ideology. But as I write in the book, that's only a small part of what they do. Most of what they do is dealing with, with problems that are unrelated to academia in a direct sense. For example, Party Secretary Kong, he basically spent most of his time building up this new campus from scratch. Because in Qingdao, there was not a campus for Shandong University. He basically created this thing from scratch. When, I, when he first offered me the job, this was in 2012, there was just an empty field. I said, well, Merit, thank you very much. I'll think about it. Five years later, there was a full campus developed. I and mean, so they also deal with what we might call psychological or harmonious issues. Like when there's a, in, in the case of our campus, there was a serious misfortune on campus. And then the party secretary had to spend days dealing with a grieving parent. So this is a sort of division. In principle, there, there's two tracks, but in practice, much of Much depends on the personalities involved. I mean, in China, there's a general trend towards empowering more of the party secretaries, but at our university, I got along quite well with, with people that I worked with, whether they were party secretaries or vice deans. So there was not overt conflict, but sometimes there can be really poisonous relations. So the good side of this dual kind of track system is that there's checks on each other, right? I mean, if I had a crazy idea. I would have to run it through not just the party secretary, but the whole collective leadership, including, uh, well, we had three vice party secretaries and there had to be, there had to be some sort of agreement, but on the other hand, it would be hard for the party secretaries to ram things through without agreement by those on the academic track. Now, the downside is that it requires a lot of extensive deliberations, which leads to a lot of inefficiencies. And sometimes it's hard to get things done or where one party is staunchly against reform that can block things. Shandong University especially, is famous for being probably the most bureaucratic place of the most bureaucratic country of the world. So you can imagine the source of issues that we had to deal with it often took a very long time.
1: Time to take a short break. We'll be right back.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Every September, HESA releases the State of Post-Secondary Education in Canada, Canada's most comprehensive, detailed, and data-driven report on the higher education sector. Despite having one of the world's most advanced and high-quality systems of higher education, Canada has never been blessed with easily available, up-to-date, and easily digestible data on its post-secondary sector. The purpose of Higher Education Strategy Associates' annual SPEC series is to change that permanently. The 2023 edition is available now. Click the link in the episode description or visit higheredstrategy.com to access the free report.
1: And we're back. Daniel, I want to turn a little bit to a more general look at higher education in China. Listers may remember a conversation I had back in episode 1.7 with Yilin Chang about her book Study Gods which talked about the fierce competition to get into top institutions in China. And I think if you've read books like that, then you think that maybe the Chinese meritocracy standards are similar to those in North America or Europe. Get into a Harvard or a Stanford and then get a great job and then success. But you've written on meritocracy in the Chinese context. In one recent article, you said that what really makes the Chinese political system distinctive is a commitment to the idea of political meritocracy, namely the idea that political systems should aim to select and promote public officials with superior ability and virtue. So my question is about what's the role of university education in identifying people with ability and virtue? Or does ability and virtue just mean people's ability to carry out tasks on behalf of the party? What's the role of university education in the pyramid of ability and virtue? So
2: to, as you mentioned, it's political meritocracy. So it's really the selection of public officials. So there's not this idea that, that resources should be distributed according to meritocratic criteria. It's really a political idea, meritocracy. And more and more since the period of reform, there's been a very strong emphasis on educational qualifications when it comes to the selection, especially of mid to high level public officials. So. Arguably, the kind of least corrupt, not arguably, I think I can say this with a great deal of confidence, the least corrupt institution of China, in China is the university examination system. I mean, it has many problems, but in terms of the most obvious problem is that those who are from the countryside often don't have access to good schools and good teachers that can prepare them well for the national examinations. But the examinations themselves are quite free and fair without a kind of Corrupt process. So first and foremost, that's the thing to get into university, according to these examinations, and it's super competitive. I I read the book that you referred to. I mean, and I think she refers also more to people who go abroad, but in China, it's quite narrow. It's really performance, according to Mm. the examinations to get into universities. And then if you want to serve as a public official, it's important to be a party member. And that's a very, very highly competitive process within the university as well. And more more so in the 1980s, I knew many people from China and actually the high-performing students often didn't wanna be party members. It was viewed as somehow undesirable or tainted or something that the best performers didn't wanna do. But now it's the opposite. It's super competitive to get into the party because that provides opportunities not just to be, well, especially to be public officials. And in Shandong province, as mentioned, Unlike other parts of China, it's really this the dream of almost all the students to be party officials. So it's very competitive to get into the uh, party, which I, the, the party is a bit misleading. Let's just call it the ruling organization. And after that, then once they graduate from the university, they have to pursue the examinations to be public officials. Those are also super competitive. But as you probably know, there's a big... In the past, most universities, most graduates from top universities like Shenlong University would want to do the examinations to be higher level public officials. But now there's this very bad unemployment problem for university graduates. So more and more, some of my students, for example, Shenlong University would do the examinations to be, for example, city level public officials, which they didn't used to before, just because now it's hard to get jobs once you graduate. Which wasn't true even five or six years ago. But still the major
1: first step on the ladder, no matter what. Right. Yeah. Okay. Prior to being at Shandong, you were at Tsinghua University in Beijing. And that's interesting because this, politically, this is, it's founded by Americans using their share of the Boxer Rebellion indemnity. It's the equivalent of Oxford in the UK or Todai in Tokyo in the sense that it produces such a significant fraction of the country's senior politicians. Can you tell us a bit about this institution? Like, what's its history? How did it get to be so important in, in national politics and culture?
2: So before the revolution, it did have um, a tradition in the humanities, and many of the great philosophers and political reformers taught at Tsinghua University, for example, Liang Qichao. But in the 1950s, it became the kind of humanities part became shived off, and it became more of a university that focused first and foremost on science and technology but starting in a period of reform in the late 70s early 80s then it became once again a comprehensive university and so in the early days of reform in the 1980s and 90s most of the public officials especially the high level ones were trained as engineers and Tsinghua was a premier engineering university in China so m- many of those who were successful at Tsinghua went into politics but now more and more there's graduates from other fields who become leading public officials. Just to give you an example, the former president of Tsinghua University, who's trained as an environmental engineer, now he's the party secretary of Shanghai. He's very talented and well-liked, and he is probably on the fast track to political
1: power as well. You know. Interesting. Well, so you mentioned you allude a little bit to some tensions there between stem fields and humanities fields right so in, in beijing proper as you say the humanities were hived off from one university and then more or less given to beijing university right that's the Tibet. that's where that is is focused now i write a lot about rankings i'm on the board at the academic rankings of world universities in shanghai and of course the one thing everyone's seen in the last decade or so 15 years or so is the massive investments in stem fields at chinese universities but there is another tradition, as you said. So scholars like Ruth Hayho and William Kirby have written eloquently about the importance and rich history of liberal arts in China. So you ran a social science and arts school in China. What do you think? Is there any chance that higher education in China would swing back in the direction of the humanities at some point? Has the pendulum swung as far as it's going to go in terms of STEM or might it come back? I don't think it's one or the other. I mean, China is one of the few countries
2: in the world where there's been massively increased funding for the humanities over the past two or three decades. So I I think both tendencies have gone hand in hand and the government itself seeks its legitimacy more and more in the pre 20th century kind of imperial and also pre-imperial history. So there's more and more funding, not just for Marxism, but for studies, for example, in Confucianism and in Chinese history And archaeology. And even in my faculty, I mean, we had many problems. I mean, I have described them in the book, not just inefficiency, but growing political interference, growing censorship. I mean, my book is pretty frank about the problems. But I must say, we never had problems of lack of resources. If we wanted to hire good people, we had the money for it. If we wanted to send students abroad, we had the money for it. That wasn't the problem for us. The problem for us were different. There were more
1: political in nature. I'm curious about gender relations on Chinese campuses. One report I read recently suggested that only about 5% of presidents at research universities in China are women. And of course, there was the appearance of Me Too movements on Chinese campuses. That was a major story in the immediate pre-COVID years. Ones that seemed to rattle the government quite a lot, which seemed contradictory from a party that used to talk about how women hold up half the sky. Now, a lot of your book is about authority on campus and where it stems from. What are the sources of authority? How does gender play out in terms of campus authority or campus culture in China? Is it different from North America or Europe? This was
2: actually one of the most depressing parts of my job. I mean, Shandong, there's great diversity in China. Hong Kong, where I am now, is probably the most gender-friendly part of China. Shanghai, maybe second. And Shandong is arguably the most patriarchal part of China. And I don't want to blame the Confucian heritage, but it's more, let's just say the, what we can call vulgar Confucianism, the way that Confucianism Mm. has been interpreted in a kind of non-philosophical, vulgar sociological way where men are supposed to be dominant and women are supposed to stay home and do the housework and care for the children and so on. And that has still has great influence in Shandong University. I mean, that said our president. For most of the time I was there was female, but she was really the counter example, so to speak. And we, of course, I often went out of my way to try to recruit female professors and to give opportunities to female students, but it wasn't always easy. and And sometimes there were obvious prejudices and it's getting worse in some ways because when there was a one-child-per-family policy, there wasn't an assumption that if you if, if we wouldn't have very lifelong responsibilities caring for a child. But now that you can have two or more children, sometimes it's assumed that women are going to do the caring and therefore are going to have, to have extra responsibilities in the home and therefore they can't devote themselves much to the job. So there is, there is, in some ways, it's getting worse, the prejudice against women, I, I regret to say.
1: Interesting. Just to sum up, when do you think we'll see another Canadian dean at a major Chinese university?
2: who knows right i mean things could change in 20 or 30 years and i think they will i'm still assuming that you know we're sorry don't mean to sound too pessimistic but assuming that we get beyond the existential threats that we all face climate change and unregulated nuclear weapons and ai and so on but if the past few years in terms of political openness have been two steps backward one step forward in china that's not a good sign for Canadians or anybody else who wants to serve and learn about China in academia, especially. But I think among the young people and among intellectuals, there's still a great desire to engage and to learn from abroad. So I think once there's a bit more of a political opening at the higher levels, I'm still optimistic that there will be more of the exchanges
1: and experiences of the sort that I describe in this book. That's all we have time for. Daniel, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you. That was Daniel Abel, author of The Dean of Shandong, Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat at a Chinese University, available from Princeton University Press. It remains for me to thank our excellent producers, Sam Pufek and Tiffany McLennan, and you, the listener, for joining us. If you have any suggestions for future podcasts, please get in touch with us at podcastathigheredstrategy.com. Join us next week when our guest will be Dr. Pushkar. He's director and chief executive of the International Center in Goa, And he'll be with us to talk about recent developments in higher education in India. Bye for now.
0: The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production. Produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufik. Hosted by Alex Usher. Music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.